Welcome to the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. This podcast features recordings of academic papers on the history of medicine and medical humanities, which were given to audiences in University College Dublin as part of the Centre Seminar series. For more information on the series and all Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland activities, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash body dot htm or simply do a search for CHOMI UCD in Google. This episode features the renowned playwright and poet Frank McGuinness, who gave a paper entitled Living with Mortality, a Short Stay in Switzerland on February 25th 2010 in the Humanities Institute of Ireland, UCD. Frank spoke about the issue of mortality as treated in drama from Greek theatre to contemporary work, including his adaptation of Ibsen's Ghosts and his screenplay for the widely acclaimed and BAFTA-nominated BBC drama A Short Stay in Switzerland, which tells the story of Dr Anne Turner, who chose to end her life in a Dignitas clinic in Switzerland in January 2006. I, I usually stay clear of talking about creative work that um, is completed not that far back, and it's a year since a short stay in Switzerland was filmed, and a year and a half since the script was finalised. Um, and when I say finalised, I can only tell you that if you go to um, Eugene's here, if you go to the archive room in UCD, you will discover that there is that amount, and I'm not exaggerating, of rewrites and script things coming from it, and that's about two-thirds of it. There's still more to come, actually. Um, so it was a hell of a rewrite. But I don't like talking about something that I have done in the recent past, because it's not out of a spirit of um, you know, artistic pretension or creating mystery about creative work, although there is always an element of that. It's largely because I don't want to um, dwell on what has been done and gone. And once something is done and gone, it is done and gone as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's not that I have no interest in it or it's not that I have um, uh, no respect for it, but... Um, if you really want to annoy me, you will say, didn't you write that play um, about these Ulster men who went to the Somme? And I will say, yes, I did, uh, 27 years ago. And I, you know, as Jella Lawson once said about um, a bunch of cherries, well, they've seen better days, but haven't we all, darlings? You know? um, but I decided I wouldn't mind talking about this because it was a very unusual way of working, not just because it was television, um, but also because it was really the first time ever that I, I worked on simultaneous projects when I was doing the screenplay. And as you'll hear, I couldn't have done the screenplay without the assistance of the family involved and without the powerful cooperation of the two women producers who saved me from the worst excesses of the BBC. Um, but I also believe I don't think I could have done it without the um, sustenance and the uh, feeding that came from the two plays that I'm going to talk about, and um, as well as a short stay in Switzerland. And I think I, I'm not entirely sure if I've got a coherent uh, talk for you tonight, um, but I think it does make sense. I hope it does anyway. Um, so I'll go now and say what I have to say. Um, the subject of a short stay in Switzerland was a woman called Anne Turner. She was a doctor. She specialised in fertility, 
and she lived in the city of Bath in England. Um, and she had taken her life with the assistance of Dignitas, um, her business Switzerland, in um, January of 2006. It was quite a controversial decision because she had gone public and had broadcast um, her reasons for making this terrible decision uh, on the BBC News. It was shown like, the day that it happened. Um, family interviewed. And um, I have to admit, because this is a subject that um, gives me the creeps, I, I really didn't listen to the news when it happened. I didn't want to know. Um, and that is, again, a surprising admission, not just because of the fact that I went and I um, investigated eventually for reasons that I'm going to tell you about it, but it, I, I, in my recent research, I talked to the wife of a bomb disposal expert. Um, and I said to her, what is it like being married to Martin McNatt, actually? And she said, well, he's frightened of spiders. <laughs> uh, I thought that sums up an awful lot of what I do as well, because I, the title of this is Living with Mortality, and mortality is an absolute obsession in, the, in their work and the creative work, but in life I run a mile from these kind of things. So I didn't really pay much attention, didn't want to know about, about this. Until one night when I was uh, cooking dinner at home, I really did make my first true acquaintance with the Turner family. And fittingly enough, it did come through the BBC not with the news, but with the current affairs programme, Panorama. The chosen topic for a debate um, on the programme that night was assisted dying. And they had lined up a very long list of people uh, who all took to the podium. And they were given an equal amount of time, a reasonable amount of time, three, four, five minutes maybe, I can't remember, um, to make their points pro and anti. And as I was preparing dinner, this voice came from the set, the TV set, and it was a woman. And for some reason, even though it was not a constant programme, this voice, this woman, struck a chord very deeply within me. She was talking about the death of her parents. And since um, the very shocking death of my parents um, in 1996 and 1997, it was shocking because they were quite young. My mother was 67, my father was 70. It was even more shocking because they died within 10 months of each other, so I call it shocking. Since the, the shocking death of my parents um, in those years, I have developed um, one skill which has never deserted me. And that is, uh, I can tell with great rapidity when grief, when the expression of grief and bereavement is genuine or not. And within minutes of this woman starting to speak, Sophie Tough Turner's sorrow at her mother's loss 
occurring so soon after the loss of her father struck me as being genuine, almost absolutely unbearable. And that sorrow, that unbearable sorrow, communicated itself not through any parading of suffering, not through any excess of lament. She had about her story, if you like, a, a tremendous control. So it was the accuracy of her telling what her parents themselves, who were both doctors, what they had endured medically. It was the precision with which she so succinctly conveyed their physical decline, their loss of bodily power. That accuracy, that precision, um, let me acknowledge that here, here was a woman who knew whereof she talked, and who talked of it with tremendous authority. And she might share that knowledge with me, should she and her family allow myself and my friend, Liz Trubrig, the television producer, to write a film based on their unique experiences. I think it is fair to call it a unique experience. I think the chances of this happening are one in many millions where both her mother and her father, within months of each other, developed and died from horrendous wasting diseases. So here was a family living with a very specific form of mortality. Now, living with mortality in itself is not a unique topic for a play. Uh, one might say it, it forms the heading for much of what happens in all Western drama, right back from our origins in the Greek theatre, through to centuries, through the centuries rather, to our contemporary inheritance in modern European playwright. Now, by progressing through the innumerable drafts of a short stay in Switzerland, I was simultaneously working on providing versions of two key texts in the theatrical column, canon rather, Oedipus by Sophocles and Ghosts by Henry Gibson. Now these are the diverse dilemmas confronted within these radically different families helped to inform and to deepen the sheer scale of what I would say is the tragedy, the fate Affect, afflicting the Turner family, mother and father under curse, under sentence of death, as surely, as savagely, as any fate the Greek gods could devise for those they might choose to afflict, as they did to Oedipus himself. In each of these texts, the protagonists must decide how they cope with plague in some form or other. Plague that devours the city of Thebes in Oedipus. 
plague that the sins of the fathers sits or visits upon the son in goats, where the plague is the illness of syphilis. The plague where the body starts to paralyze, to deaden, and to consume itself, as it does also in a short stay in Switzerland. And the action always demands the same question. How is this plague to be confronted? How can it be defeated? What Sophocles made of Oedipus a proud, brave fool, hell-bent on knowing precisely who he is, where precisely he comes from, and what precisely is happening to him. He, of course, solved, before the plague began, he solved the Sphinx riddle. What walks on four legs in the morning, three, two in midday, three at night? And the answer is, of course, man. Now he must solve an even more dangerous riddle. And that is the enormous conundrum of who am I? In seeking that solution with all the ferocity his health and strength provide, he will bring chaos upon his head. And through the chaos, he will learn that he has killed his father, he has married his mother, he has bred children who are also his brothers and sisters, as well as his daughters and son. And he has brought misfortune and death to all in Thebes, reeling from the terrible symptoms of the gods' anger. The worst of all is that wounds now have turned putrid. Every child born in the city is born dead. To lift the curse, Oedipus must locate it, and its location is himself. The punishment, then, is self-inflicted. Having borne witness to the vision of his wife and mother, dead by her own incestuous hands, Oedipus blinds himself as befitting the crimes he has committed. It is a horrifying end, but it is also an appropriate end. Because in its brutality, it marks an end to the horrors he has initiated. And it brings with it a curious liberation. Having committed so thorough an act of self-mutilation, there is a sense of that to misquote saying, there is nothing more the gods can do to him. Nothing more the gods in their utter hatred of humanity can do to the suffering man, the disgraced son, the damaged father. Oedipus declares that Apollo dances to see him suffer. But there is in his human stumbling, through the dark, there is a pattern, there is a choreography which leads him to a much greater knowledge of himself. A darker appreciation 
of just how much he stands alone. Apollo, friends, it was Apollo. He delights, he dances to see me suffer. This hand alone stole my sight from me. When nothing is there, why need I see? His is a loneliness, then, that the gods might envy. They never, ever being able to rival it. Since only the human heart, only the human mind, the human body, that has committed such error, could atone so severely and still hear itself that human heart beating. In sacrificing his sight, Oedipus also sacrifices something else. His belief that the gods are all-powerful. They are lacking in one respect. And that is the scale of human knowledge that allows us, at the end, some control, some vestige of control over our existence. That at the end, was what Anne Turner chose to celebrate, that power of control, that last vestige of the great human right to say enough, no more, no. She demanded a medical solution to what she saw as medical ignorance. There was no cure for her condition but the cure she herself proposed. Death, and in that respect, she was foreshadowed by the crisis that concludes the 19th century Norwegian drama Ghosts by Henrik Ibsen. Now, I'm kind of obsessed by Ghosts at the moment because my version has just opened in London. So it does inform the, the, the film, so I'm going to talk about it. It's hard to imagine today any play provoking the uproar and crisis ghosted on its first publication. Ostensibly, the screams of anguish centred on Ibsen's decision to confront head-on the reality of syphilis as the disease affects a wealthy, isolated family in Norway. The dead father, Captain Alving, has transmitted the illness to his innocent artist son, Oswald. Oswald has returned home to tell his mother this news and to demand that when the final symptoms of absolute paralysis develop, she will kill him by feeding him the 12 capsules of morphine he has a secret about himself to end his life. The furore that did accompany the play served, of course, eventually as its best publicity. Although it sold less than other plays of Ibsen's, and indeed although it could only find its first public performance among the Norwegian-speaking emigrants of Chicago, the play has eventually found its secure place in the European canon. Now a century and more after the writing of Ghosts, it is necessary to assert that as with all works of art, 
that court outrage. The play is much more significant for what it tries to hide than for what it apparently tackles openly and thoroughly. In short, there is a downside more to the downside more contained in the meaning of ghosts than a syphilitic father, a hypocritical mother, and a dying son. The play traumatized its society by betraying that same society as utterly rotten to the core. So rotten that it left to its young no choices other than to devour or be devoured. The bleakness of its candor left no secrets unspilt, and the most terrible secret is articulated by the son Oswald when he demands his mother do the mercy killing as he bids her. She retaliates, saying, I am your mother. He challenges that retaliation, help me because you are my mother. She plays her trump card, I gave life to you. And then Oswald delivers his devastating verdict on that maternal, parental, biological truth. He says, and I did not ask you for my life. What kind of life have you given me? I give it back to you. I don't want it. You have to take it. The play ends in deep ambiguity. Oswald is left helpless, repeating the word son. Mrs. Alvring watches herself and watches him and knows that each of them is equally paralyzed, equally helpless as to decide what they do next. Would she let him live? Would she let him die? Ghosts rewrites the whole roles of the nurturing parent. Here, father transmitted death to the brain of the son. Mother's last act of sustenance, the child's last cry for comfort, is to be put down. In the play, humanity is hung, drawn, and quartered. Sex is sin and deathly. Redemption has absconded with a family priest, Parson Manders, to lead a life of lies. In Ghosts, Ibsen expressed the consequences of lying. And in this world, it is a way of losing everything. And that is what precisely Anne Turner believed when she was diagnosed with PSP. Progressive Super Palsy. Anne Turner qualified as a doctor in the Britain of the 1950s. She and her husband Jack both practiced in the fledgling National Health Service and both of them were passionately committed to it, passionate believers in its existence and in its survival. And they made their home in the prosperous suburbs of the city of Bath, where they owned a beautiful Georgian farmhouse, surrounded by a magnificent garden. Their joint income as doctors ensured their prosperity, and they had three children, two daughters, Sophie and Jessica, and one son, Edward. Edward is an accountant, Jessica is a lawyer, 
Sophie is an actress and a documentary maker. Professionals. So to all intents and purposes, the town has seemed like a typical upper-class upper family in provincial England. And you would expect their politics to reflect that. And of course, you would expect that you're going to be proved wrong. And you are. First of all, um, I mean, sporting. The issue was tennis. They played bridge. But at a closer look, something became very quickly apparent. Sophie had very happily married an Indian, um, Candid Pada, with the blessings of her mother and father. Her dad was already dying from multiplicosis. Um, and Kadav's own testimony when I was dying is there in a letter which he wrote this wonderful acknowledgement to her of her kindness and um, acceptance um, which deeply embarrassed her because uh, she was a terribly modest woman but it, it's a sign of something that you know, Sophie married outside the tribe um, another um, proof that she was free from racist claptrap and all that goes with it. Edward, her son, is, is gay. Um, and she welcomed him and his partner, Stephen, to her home. Um, she decided that the best thing to do to celebrate this was to throw the biggest coming out party that Bath had ever seen, um, and to which she made a point of inviting those neighbours who sniggered and sneered the loudest so that um, she could welcome them with the especially lovely warning that she was an extremely formidable old bat and if you say anything about her son, you say it about her, so they'd better watch out. Much to Edward's horror, when he did tell her, Channel 4 at the time were running um, a very late night series on deviant sexualities and Anne decided, being a scientist, she had to find out at ground level exactly what was going on. So um, she videoed these and was asking them the most extraordinary questions, which deeply embarrassed them. And finally, he told her that you know she had to put this off. But anyway, this was the kind of woman she was. Actually, um, she uh, she was very special. Um, anyway, in the heartland of Tory England, Anne Turner had absolutely established herself to all comers, as a woman and a doctor of outstanding compassion. She specialised, as I said, in fertility treatment and knew all too well the profound desolation of her patients of all classes, creeds, colours, abilities, anything else, seeking to have children. It would surprise us in this country that for a woman so profoundly without religious faith she was extremely pro-life. Now, compassion was matched by rigorous honesty. The world knew where it stood with her. And a personal integrity ensured she was fearless and absolute in her loyalty to her friends. For that reason, it should not really be that big a surprise that some of her closest allies were deeply Christian and they held beliefs while she respected absolutely 
that with equal ferocity did not share and would not acknowledge as supremely powerful. Her beliefs were in science, in rationality, in learning. To put it in one word, her faith was in medicine. Its advance was the way forward for humanity, and if she said it at any mission, medicine's mission was to heal. And if it could not heal, then medicine should help ease pain. The unbearable pain, the physical, emotional, and should the patient choose to so describe it, the spiritual pain of the desperately ill, the mortally ill. When her husband Jack was suffering from a savage wasting disease that decimated his body, she and the children nursed him as best they could and as long as they could in the family home, aided by a wonderful Irish neighbour, Mrs. Savory. Then it was absolutely necessary that he be taken into a home, a hospice, where in agony, his agony, their agony, they watched him effectively starve to death, dying of want, dying of thirst. The hideous irony that he should be deprived of all dignity in the name of the law treated in rage this most just of women. But it is also, I am sure of this, terrified her. And in a way that I will go into, not in the conventional way. And it was out of terror that she acted when she herself was diagnosed with PSP. And by no stretch of the imagination did Anne regard herself as a hero. That to her would be as meaningless a description as regarding herself as a saint. So why did she act as she did? Why did she act with such determination? Now, I never met this woman. Stress that. So what I'm speaking of is my imagination, my invention. And in my invention, I believe, indeed I have no doubt, that Anne Turner knew from the first confirmation that her illness was PSP, from the first diagnosis, she knew that she would commit suicide. In very crude narrative terms, the suspense of the story would not lie in would she do the act, nor exactly why, but how and when. And the answer to those secrets, after so many secrets in the classical theatre, lies in the backstory. And the backstory here was the illness of the husband and father and the manner of his death. Having borne witness not merely to the prolonged agony of Jack Turner, but also, and perhaps even more so, to the exhausting grief, the all-consuming mourning of her sons and daughters, and determined that her young would not be put through an even more devastating experience as they watched her decline into a living corpse. 
outlining to them, as she did without faltering, that her body would eventually cease to perform every function. She would lose even the capacity to blink. But she would be fully conscious of her ordeal. To exercise that consciousness, to assert her human right to use her mind, independent most definitely of church, independent most defiantly if necessary of state, she what use, what means or at her disposal to die. And she would do so only with their full knowledge and consent. And for me the great question posed by this specific case centres on that fact. I did not embark on writing this film to examine the pros and cons of assisted suicide. Polemicists and philosophers, lawyers and journalists will give you much more detailed, more challenging illuminations of the problems and paradoxes that arise. I did not embark on it because it provided a sob story for 90 minutes of television. If I wanted to do that, I would have killed off Flora the Cat. <laughs> I did not wish to outrage religious sympathies, largely because it would be beneath Anne's legacy, her own respect. And as I said, Anne was much loved in her parish, so much so that in an unheard of precedent, the local priest, the vicar, asked if he could hold a service of remembrance and thanksgiving for the life of this atheist as he and his parishioners needed to weep for her loss and they needed to do it in the church. Now I wanted to understand what it was that drew me to this story and I knew there had to be something stirring beneath the surface that I had not immediately seen. It took me time to know what it might be and this is I think what it is. I never lost sight of three defining traits in Anne's estimation of herself. Doctor, wife, mother. When she received news of her disease, all these three combined to make her so resolute in her decision to die at her own hand. She was wife to a man who had contracted a wasting disease. She was mother to his children, who the doctor in her knew had inherited from both of them, a family history on both sides where different forms of savage illness came through each set of genes. This was the issue never discussed among the Turners. They told me that. Men and women who believed in outing all domestic troubles and dealing with them no matter how tough, in the open. And as you can imagine, how unlike, how very unlike our own dear family life in Ireland that was. But this was the sorrow that could not be faced, because it belonged to the future. And there was ample, there was too much sorrow in the past of their father's death and in the present of their mother's illness. But it was also the reason why Anne Turner deferred her decision to commit suicide. She didn't do it immediately. It was why she insisted 
her children be kept informed of every step she took. And it was why she wanted them with her in that desolate room in Zurich, belonging to Dignitas. Her decision to go public and broadcast on BBC News her reasons for dying was a broader indication of what she most intimately wanted her next of kin to know. I have the courage to do this. I have the will. And I have the heart. Even though my heart is broken, my will is limited, and my courage, my courage thrives from yours, my son, my daughters. There are accusations made she was a selfish woman. There are always accusations of selfishness against the suicide. But Anne's act in that room in Zurich was, I think, an act of supreme selflessness because she was saying, if I do this and you are here and do not blame me, then know this. If you, any of you, have to do this, even though I am not here, I do not blame you either. Your mother will be with you in memory, as you, my children, are with me in presence. Living with the medical legacy bestowed in them, they could face what is to come or not to come. And with that last act of healing, that last act of parental love and protection, this is why she bade their farewells. What happened to the Turners during a short stay in Switzerland was a tragic irony. And it was the meeting of the tragic and the ironic that grabbed my attention and would not let me flag through the 18 months of writing and rewriting until, at last, the children themselves were ready to tell everything that happened on that journey where their mother met and, fate, and fought her hideous fate. If she did not defeat mortality, she lived with it and left them with a the knowledge of how they too must continue living with it as well. Anne's last great testimony to Edward, Jessica and Sophie was her whisper to them the night before she died in a Zurich restaurant, raising a glass of champagne, her words were, have children. It is, of course, among much else to regret, she did not live to see Edward and Stephen have their civic union, their marriage. To her deep joy and to the deep joy of all who know and love them, because, you see, well, laws can be changed. Also, Sophie last year gave birth to her and Kada's child, a daughter called Indira. It seemed only fitting to those magnificent parents, Anne and Jack Turner, that we ended the film with Stephen and Edward's marriage, and finally with the thriving child in the arms of her mother and her uncle and aunt. 
T.S. Eliot said that sometimes we look down on the dead because we know more than them. And he pointed out, well, of course we know more than them. They are what we know. I am deeply privileged to have been given access to this woman's life. I am immensely privileged to be given insider knowledge to the family and to the character of that tough, fair, honest, infuriating, generous, healing English woman, Dr. Anne Turner. Thank you.